Welcome to An Amazingly Ordinary Life, the podcast that takes a behind-the-scenes look at the world of special needs. I'm Sherry Tharp, an autism mom and your host. Join me each week as we share our lives, build community, and redefine normal. This is An Amazingly Ordinary Life, Episode 3. Today, we'll be talking with Sarah Borgstead. We'll hear her experience with adopting her two boys, medical issues, mental health issues, violence, aggression, and eventually residential treatment. Sarah, I'd like to thank you for joining me on the podcast today and being willing to share your story. Well, thank you so much. It really is my honor, Sherry, to be here and to share with your listeners. Why don't you start out with just jumping in, giving us a description of who you are and your family and let us get to know you. My name is Sarah Borgstead. I run a website called The Holy Mass because life is messy. <laughs> and my husband and I have five children. We have three biological children and then two children that we adopted from foster care. And both of those children have pretty significant special needs. And in addition to that, we were foster parents for six years to over 35 foster children. So wow. lots of experiences. And also my husband is a pastor. So that makes me a pastor's wife. So I'm a busy family with lots going on. Sounds like it. How did you get started in foster care? So that's a funny story, actually. Before we even were married, I knew that I wanted to be a foster parent. And, you know, we were young and in love. We had no idea what those real challenges would actually look like. When I was in college and before I had gotten married, I worked in a daycare and there was actually a little girl who came into the daycare with her foster mom and she was so excited that her foster mom had gotten her clean clothes and some other essential things that she didn't have before. And it just really touched my heart. And I thought if I could make that kind of difference in children's lives, I was all about that. I knew that someday I wanted to do that. That's awesome. So obviously your husband was on board with that. Yeah. I mean, I'd say he, <laughs> he's willing to go along with some of my crazy <laughs> ideas. <laughs> Sometimes that's all you could ask for. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But he is just completely embraced it and, you know, loves our children and has done so many things for them over the years. He's a great guy. So that's good. That's good. So did you have your biological children first before you started foster care? We did. So we knew we wanted to have biological children. So we have three biological children. And when the youngest was, I think he was about three years old, that was when we became certified to be foster parents. The other thing that I don't think this is always true, but we had heard this and thought it was important was to not mess up the birth order of your biological kids, like have foster kids in between there. And so that's why we waited a little bit too until the older ones were older. And then the majority of the time we only took foster children who were younger than our youngest. Yeah. I've heard the same thing as well. We looked into foster care and that was something that they recommended too. So, mm -hmm. so your youngest is three years old and you get certified for foster care. Mm -hmm. That's a wild ride. <laughs> yes, it certainly is. You have to give up all feelings of like privacy and be totally okay with them asking you all sorts of questions and inspecting your home. 
So yeah, that was quite an interesting experience. And then we started taking foster children, mostly medically fragile babies. Our first placement was a set of twin babies. And then after that, we had another set of twins. And then once they realized, oh, the Borgsteads will take twins, (laughs) then we got quite a few sets of twins. And then our two children that we adopted were some children that came along the way. And we never went into it specifically wanting to adopt. The goal of foster care is always reunification with the biological family, but we were open to it if they were a fit for our family. And that is just definitely what happened with both of our sons that we adopted. Paul, we adopted as a toddler and is now 16. And Zach that we adopted is now 11. So So you've got a full house. (laughs) Did you keep doing foster care after you adopted them? A little bit. So obviously with Paul, we adopted Zach. So we were still doing foster care with him. And we did a few more placements after Zach. But at that point, I think we didn't want to give it up because we loved it so much and had such a heart for it and saw the need. But we also were recognizing that we definitely had our hands full. (laughs) So at that point, we knew it was probably time to be done as foster parents because we were really realizing the severity of their special needs. Actually, one of the things that you go into fostering and adopting and you know some of what's going on, but you never know everything that's going on until you're in there and you're with them and living with them day to day. So when you first brought Paul into the home, what did you know and what did you start learning about him? What did you start noticing? I think you hit the nail on the head so many times, you know, very little about children's situations. Just Paul, for example, he had been a twin and his twin had died. We didn't find that out until much later in his story. But what was true for us is that our children had special medical needs. And so we were bracing ourselves for that. We were prepared for that. What we were not expecting was the mental health challenges, Mm -hmm. especially because we adopted them as babies, toddlers. We had them in our home most of their lives. But now that I understand so much more about early childhood trauma, it has a tremendous impact on children especially on their mental health. But at the time, even with my training as a foster parent, I thought that, well, they've been in our home almost their entire life. Yes, there's going to be some bumps along the way, but I had no idea just how devastating that trauma would be. So how did that present itself with Paul? We knew that he was physically abused and that he was premature. And so that prematurity also was traumatic. And that was really the primary thing that led to a number of surgeries and therapies. So he got all the therapies, the feeding therapy, the OT, the PT, the speech throughout his early years. You know, it's kind of a blur when I think back to all the different things that we were doing for him because he was so premature. And so that's really what we were anticipating when we adopted him, thinking that, you know, we didn't even know, like, would he walk? Would he talk? He had had a brain hemorrhage when he was just a few days old. But physically, he's fine. Like, you would never know. He He's in better shape than the rest of our family. He <laughs> runs and plays and does all kinds of things. It was the trauma that caused the lasting mental health damage that has been so challenging. Yeah. 
But as he grew, we knew something wasn't right with his behavior, especially because we had done so much parenting and he was just literally bouncing off the walls. Like I remember taking him to the doctor and he would crash into the wall and crash into the doctor's Mm. chair and crash into the changing table. And I'm thinking, this is really extreme. And that just continued to escalate. And so the biggest challenges with Paul were and are violence and aggression. He became very aggressive. And, you know, as a toddler, we could somewhat contain that because you can pick them up, you can carry them places, you can hold them. And then as he grew, that just became more and more of a problem to where it was really just a devastating problem that our family was attempting to deal with. So how do you address something like that? It's very challenging. So by the time Paul was nine or 10 years old, he was raging almost daily destroying our property, kicking holes in the walls. We would call the police. It got to where the police told us to stop calling because we called so much. Children can be admitted to the hospital, although that's a tricky thing too, because they really don't want to admit children for more the behavioral aggressive side, if it's more the mental health. So it's very, very difficult. And the way our story went is that Paul actually spent some time in residential treatment, which was very hard to obtain. It took about four years of advocating for him to get that. And so during those years, we were living with his aggression and violence. And there is a real thing of what's called child on parent violence, because your child can hurt you, but you can't touch your child. I mean, of course you would never want to hurt your child, but you have to be so careful as a parent, even like holding them down or trying to restrain them or keep them in a room. You can't lock them in a room. There's just a lot of things. And so it is very difficult. And it's something that I don't think is talked about that much because as a parent, you feel embarrassed and ashamed and, you know, I must be doing something wrong and you want to respect your child's privacy too. So it is something that I write about some on my website. Again, we want to respect Paul's privacy too, but because I know that when I was in that place, I was so desperate for help and I felt so lonely and so alone. And unfortunately, the systems that are there for you when you're a foster parent are not there for you when you have adopted and the child is yours legally. And so that makes it really tough too. Right. We went through a period with my son, Logan, who has autism to where he got really, really aggressive. And at first it started out to where it was just aggression against me. And I'm thinking, I'm mom, I can take it. It's all right. As long as it's just me. And then it was aggression against siblings. And again, it was contained in the home and we were trying to stay ahead of that. But then when it became aggression against classmates and teachers, that's when we had to deal with that. But like you said, you want to respect their privacy. But for me also, it was a, I didn't want anyone to look at my son differently. They already did. They already did. And I didn't want them judging him based on that and it skewing their perception of him. So I completely understand that. I know, I know it happens a lot more often than we hear about because I have friends that it happens to as well. And it's not something that you just go around advertising. Right. It's, it's not difficult. what comes up at birthday parties. <laughs> no, exactly. How's your son? Oh, well, he punched me. So we're good. Right. Yeah. 
Oh, it's so true. And unfortunately, our systems are set up to almost penalize the parent. Like I had a parent who had written to me because of something I'd written on my website. And she was saying that they ended up having to go to court because of her child's violence against her and property destruction. And then they got fined. Oh, no. and, you know, and it just becomes this just very, very difficult situation. And so I so feel for parents. And I really agree with what you say, too. You don't want people to look at your child is already struggling, right. uh, maybe struggling to make friends. You don't want parents to be like afraid of their child playing with your child. And then that leads to even more isolation. It really can become a very difficult cycle to get out of. It's very challenging. That's definitely an area where the system, whatever it may be, lets down the parents for sure. So when Paul was at his worst and raging, did he direct it at just you and your husband? Did it come out against his siblings, people outside the home? How did that present itself? We got it all. (laughs) Like you described, it started with me and my husband. And then as he grew older and just his behavior became more severe, somewhat toward his siblings, you know, with his siblings being older, I think that was a benefit that, you know, they could push back a little bit, sometimes even in ways that I or my husband couldn't get away with. And again, I'm not saying, you know, cause any harm, but if Paul comes and pushes them and they push back, he learns a little bit of the reality of life there. And he did get to where he was aggressive with children at school too. And that was the point where he was moved into a smaller classroom and eventually a smaller school for children with mental health issues and then the hospitalizations and things like that as well. We had taught our children, like as soon as he started raging, they went to their bedrooms and they locked the door. And we even put things in place, like I would never allow my kids to eat in their bedroom, but we let them have snacks in there. And we put like some treats and things in there. And like the older ones would take Zach, our youngest, when he got to that point, they would take him in there. So they kind of learned that that would be their little fun time that they could do things. And while my husband and I were dealing with Paul's behaviors, and that did work pretty well. Yeah, you got to have a system in place to where everybody knows what's going on. Otherwise, <laughs> yep, the position exactly. you're dealing with the crisis, but then there's others that around there that are all have needs. And yes. how do you take care of the one and still make sure everybody else is mm-hmm. not caught in the crossfire? It gets difficult. It sure does. It sure does. So parents who are experiencing that, just please know you aren't alone and just do what you got to (laughs) do. You know, like I said, the dinner in the bedroom, it's okay. Like it's really okay. And you know, sure there's people who might judge you for that, but they don't know. They don't know what it's like to deal with these types of behaviors. So do what you have to do and just don't even feel guilty about it. Exactly. I, I can promise you your kids will grow up fine if you throw them a little bit of candy before dinner. <laughs> that <laughs> resorts too, that's to that. <laughs> yeah, that's it. the thing. I mean, honestly, as just parents of neurotypical kids, the guilt is always high. But then you throw in these kids that you know <laughs> there's always something more you can do. Always something more you can do. And then having their siblings that, I mean, you can pile on the guilt easily and you just got to know everything's going to be okay. If they have a late dinner, if they skip a bath, if they watch too much TV, it'll be okay. That those things are just so true. You just do what you have to do to just to keep moving through life. (laughs) That's so true. I just wanted to share hope 
for parents who are listening because Paul is doing amazingly well right Good. now. He's doing so well. And, you know, I had very different predictions of where his life might be by the time he was 16. If I looked at his life when he was 10, 11, 12, I mean, daily violence, daily aggression in and out of the hospital, in and out of the ambulance and the police and all those things. But as I said, he did spend some time in residential treatment, which was very hard, but also absolutely necessary for him. And for us, we needed to heal. We were exhausted and just could give no more. And he is back in our home now. He is a member of our family in every way. He is not violent. You know, we still got our stuff, okay? Right. You're always (laughs) going to have something. (laughs) We have our issues and things that we're working on with him and our family and in therapy, but he's doing phenomenally well. He goes to school. He gets along with his siblings. He goes to Taekwondo. He goes to church. I get just emotional just even talking about it every time because I'm so proud of him. He has come so far and is doing very, very well. That's just amazing to hear. And I'm so glad you were able to find something that worked for him and that you were, I mean, four years is a long time to not give up hope and to keep pursuing an avenue that would help him. So good for you with sticking with that and and getting the help that he needed. Yes, it was a very difficult time in our lives, the most difficult time in our family's life. You know, it affected our marriage, it affected our other children, it affected friendships, financial. I mean, there's really not an area of life that it didn't affect. And, you know, as a parent, I just remember in those years thinking like, this is never going to end. It's never going to get better. It gets so bleak and dark when you're in those times. But again, just an encouragement to other parents that we have seen tremendous progress and our life is nothing like that now. So Even though it's tough right now, I'm not saying your child's diagnosis might change. I mean, my children will always have the diagnosis that they have. And I know that's true for you and for so many parents who are listening, but that doesn't mean that things will always be this difficult. It can get much better. So good to hear. Any little bit of hope that we can find, we just need to cling to. (laughs) Is he able to be in regular classes with kids or is he still in a smaller school? Yep. He is in an alternative high school, although I guess the classes are still pretty small, but at one point he was in a very restrictive high school and we were able to move him into another school where he has more opportunities. Like there's more extracurricular type things, more types of classes. It's a bigger school, even though it is still an alternative school. So he's doing right there. Yeah, that was a big step. He was very nervous. We were very nervous of how he would do. It has a higher academic expectations. But he rose to the occasion this last year and he did very, very well. Good. So how old was Paul when you brought in Zach? Oh, that's a good question. So I believe Paul was three when Zach came into our home and Zach's issues are very different from Paul's, just as challenging, but in a very different way. So Zach is intellectually delayed 
course, we didn't know that at the time. But then Zach also has a rare genetic metabolic condition called gluteric acidemia type 1, which is shortened to GA1. And what that means is that his body does not properly digest protein. And how that factors out into regular life is twofold, mainly. The first is that he follows a low-protein diet, which is totally the opposite of every other American. Exactly. (laughs) Everything's fortified with protein these days and we drink our protein shakes and have our protein bars, but he has to have a very limited amount of protein. And then during the first six years of his life, illness was very risky and life-threatening. Thankfully, Mm -hmm. the risk for that goes down significantly as he gets older. And now that he's 11, we're in a beautiful space. His sixth birthday was a huge celebration because of that. But he was hospitalized many times during his early years in order to prevent some of those things from happening called a metabolic crisis if he would get sick because when we get sick our bodies break down protein to help us that's typically a good Mm -hmm. thing but in his case that was a negative so so anytime he got sick like a cold flu any of that he would have to go to the hospital yeah it's typically things that affect the metabolism so it would be a fever okay or like if you have like the stomach flu or something like that where you're it's going to affect your metabolism so those were the things that were very risky for him in the early years and we did not know when we brought him into our home that he had GA1 he was not diagnosed with that until a little bit later but we did know when we adopted him that he had it right how long was he with you before you adopted him He was about 18 months old and they actually rushed his adoption. Typically it takes two to three years to adopt from foster care, but because of his extreme medical issues and recognizing that there was no way his birth family would be up to the task of that, they were able to kind of fast forward the adoption, which was really nice because then we had medical consent. As a foster parent, you don't have medical consent, which every, you know, every test, every procedure if the birth parents' rights have been terminated, then you have to go to court. And that's just a very difficult situation. Right. So we adopted him, yeah, when he was 18 months old. Well, good. That's nice that at such a young age, he was able to get that stability. It was. How does Zach do in school? Is he integrated into the average classes or? Um, we've done some of that. He does best when he's in a smaller class. Mm-hmm. So it sometimes depends on the year and how they're, you know, configuring things. He always spends some time in a smaller class, like a 611 or something like that. So school is challenging for him. It's hard. You know, the work is hard and he doesn't like to do things that are hard. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things about his IQ and just who he is as a person that is very great, but also very challenging is whatever he's thinking, he's going to tell you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So if he doesn't like it, you're going to hear about it. And if he likes it, you're going to hear about it a lot. (laughs) I have one of those too. (laughs) Yes. You know how it is. There's no filter. (laughs) Yes. No filter. That's exactly what we say. Well, you know, Zach has no filter. There's days that we and our family, like my husband and with our other children, we talk about like, that must be nice. Just whatever you're thinking, you just say it. Yeah, there's there's no thought to coaching things in a way to where you don't hurt people's feelings. It's just out there and honest. Uh, yeah, we have that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. 
yeah, we've been very fortunate that we have had good school experiences. I know that sometimes people don't, and that's a huge place where they have to advocate. But thankfully, our kids really have received very good services that they need and we're thankful. Good. The right school makes all the difference. We've had horrible experiences with school to where I was ready to call out a state advocate and an attorney. And I've had amazing experiences where like, I'm still friends with his teachers and love them to death. Okay. So with having these medically fragile kids and then other issues that came along, what were some of your biggest struggles with either Paul or Zach or both? And of course you have other siblings in among all of these (laughs) issues that you're dealing with. Definitely just off the top of my head, I would say that Paul's aggression is by far the most challenging thing, because once you take that out, even some of the other behaviors, you can manage it, you can live with it, you can work with it. But the aggression, at least in my experience, and for me, I just find that to be so difficult to work with. Zach does have behavior issues too, maybe somewhat because of his early trauma, but we think that's more because of his intellectual disability. A lot of the things he presents with are just typical of people with his IQ, like he's very perseverative. He loves to perseverate on certain things, which sounds like no big deal until you live with it every single day. And you're like, oh, I cannot talk about fire trucks one more day. (laughs) Yes. And he's very highly emotional, which can be really fun and exciting and sweet. Like when it's his birthday and he will just, you know, be so excited over any toy you give him. It could be a little dollar store toy. Not so much fun when he's yelling and screaming because he has to put his shoes on and things like that. So it's been an interesting journey that God brought all these crazy different things together into one family. And trying to mix it all together. It doesn't always gel, but we do our best. <laughs> yeah, you, you do what you can, right? <laughs> yes. So all of this, five kids, two who have medical issues and mental health issues, what strain did that put on your marriage or did it bring you guys closer together? It put a lot of strain on our marriage. We went through a time when Paul was in and out of the hospital and it was affecting, like I said, our finances. We were trying to get in residential treatment. We couldn't get it. We were, you know, advocating with the justice system to try to get him the help he needed. We sort of felt put on the spot. We really very much struggled during those years with our marriage, with our ministry at our church. While our church tried to be understanding, they also were like, but you know, ministry still has to get done. And my husband was struggling with that. So, I mean, we even talked about separation at one point, which I mean, we never, neither one of us would ever give up on our marriage, but we just were at, (laughs) we were at a loss of what to do. We were struggling. We were fighting. The kids are fighting. The kids are aggressive. We're fighting. It becomes so easy to, you know, take it out on each other. That triangulation that happens. There were times when Paul would rage and throw a fit. And then my husband and I are arguing about what to do about it. Like the therapist said this, no, this person said this, but I just read this book said this. Then we'd look over and we'd see Paul calmly playing with his Legos while we're fighting like, hmm, something's not right with this picture. (laughs) (laughs) It is such a difficult situation because on the one hand, it's so vital to have somebody there by your side going through everything that you're going through as well. But you get isolated because you two are the only two that really understand everything that's happening. So there's not a lot of people that you can go to who will get it. The other side of it is you only have each other. 
So who are you going to go to, who you're going to vent to, and who you're going to take your frustrations out on is that person that's there all the time. So I definitely see, I mean, I know divorce is really high among families with special needs kids, and I get it. It's so tough when you are isolated like that, and you're the only two that you have to unload all that on. I totally agree with you. And, you know, we talk so much about self-care. You need to get away. You need to take care of yourself. Time for your marriage with just the two of you. But when you have a child that you can't really leave with a babysitter, how, how, you know, how are you going to do that? That's something that we really had a hard time with. And thankfully we had our older children who could do some childcare for us. Like when Paul was at his most aggressive, we didn't leave him with them. That would not have been what they would have been able to handle. And my husband's parents at the time lived in the same town we did. And so they would help as much as they could. Although again, when things were at their worst, we really couldn't leave him. So I just want to let other parents know, like, if you feel like, yeah, I want to get away, but I can't, that I I get it. I know that those are very real struggles for so many of us. So our older children, I have to brag on them a little bit. They are the most amazing people and they are very caring, compassionate, understanding, like they've seen the behind the scenes of something that so few other children have seen. And I had so much guilt for so long because their life really got short circuited for a lot of years there. Like, you know, we were leaving events because Paul was raging in the parking lot. And, you know, I remember a time when I had gone to a youth group event with two of the older ones and we come home and there are police in the driveway and they just went to their rooms because we taught them to go to their rooms and, you know, lock the door when Paul was raging. And I just thought that broke my heart. Like that, that's no big deal to them that the police are in the driveway. That's not okay. It should be a big deal when the police are in the driveway. Yeah. So there were some really tough times, but they have become such great young adults. They are now ranging in age from 18 to 24 and still very committed to our family. We're a very close family. Believe it or not, very committed to their younger siblings, very caring of them, take care of them. And that just astounds me. Like, I think they would have every reason to be bitter and angry about what happened and they're not. And so I want to assure other parents too, if they're going through that with older siblings or younger siblings of a special needs child, that that can really give your kids some incredible gifts. It really can. Yeah. I find that siblings tend to be more compassionate and empathetic because of that experience. I totally agree. I totally agree. And, you know, as parents, we want to shield our children from all kinds of bad things in the world. And we want to make their life, I don't want to say easy, but, you know, yes, we do. We make all kinds of decisions to make their childhood, you know, wonderful, beautiful balloons, birthday parties. But sometimes allowing them to be part of something that's very difficult is the best gift that we can give them. I agree. And you guys have obviously done a a good job with your kids and all five of them. So congratulations to you. (laughs) Thank you so much. I know this is really isolating and it's tough because other people don't understand, but between your family and church, did you have people that you could rely on if nothing else to help with the older siblings? Did you have a support system in place? Yes, we were really fortunate that my husband's parents lived in town, like I mentioned. So even when they maybe couldn't deal with the kids' worst behaviors, they were still very supportive, you know, like maybe have us over for dinner, you know, something like Mm -hmm. that. 
and help with the older kids, like maybe take one of the older kids and go do something fun with them or help them with their homework. And our church was very supportive too. What really helped with that, I think, is that they were there when we were doing foster care and then they had seen each of the children when they were babies. So I think we got less judgment than maybe if we had just walked into the church and we had this 10 year old who was raging because they had, you know, seen Paul as a baby and seen him premature and seen him with the oxygen and seen us fostering him and then adopting him. They were more supportive of his behaviors. They didn't understand it and they didn't know what to do about it. And that's so hard because honestly, I didn't know what to do about it. I mean, here's the pastor's kid standing in the front of the church saying the F word, you know, across the thing. And it's like, okay, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do with that, let alone them, but they were supportive in that. And that definitely helped. Good. That's so important to be able to have people that you can turn to, even if it's not to help with the Paul and Zach situation, just to be able to give a little bit of normalcy to your older kids is precious. It is. It's huge. Yes. And that is a great piece of advice. I love that you're saying that, that if there are people who are listening who don't have children with special needs, but want to support families who do have that, like if there is another sibling to do something fun with them, take them out, get them a little treat, like take them to McDonald's for an ice cream cone. I mean, just that right there is, that is a beautiful gift to offer. It really is because whether we mean to or not, they get neglected more than they should. Right. Because you have to, you go where the fire is. And you deal with that. And in the meantime, you're not dealing with the other siblings. And that sounds horrible, but it's the only way to get through it. You can't divide yourself in three, four or five different ways and still get that crisis taken care of. And so at that moment, you have to go where you're most needed. Sometimes they don't get the attention that they should. And that's just a fact of life, living with special needs. It's very true. What are your favorite moments with all your kids, even with all their issues and everything? What are the moments that just you really just hide away in your heart for those days that it's a little bit tougher? We have fun together. We laugh together. Like I said, you know, we all kind of laugh about some of Zach's perseverations and things like that. It's really nice to have one another to joke about different things. We joke now about Paul's rages and things like that. It was not so funny at the time, although I do remember we would even laugh about it then. Like, you know, oh, what's another hole? Dad's got nothing to do this weekend, you know, but repatch that door for a third time. So definitely having a sense of humor helps tremendously. And I do have some really sweet family moments too of, you know, times around the dinner table, Christmases, you know, our kids with their mental health issues do have such an enthusiasm and sometimes it goes over the top, but that enthusiasm has made life so much fun. It really is so much fun. So that's something that I really treasure. Good. Good. It's important to hang on to those moments and fill that love bank to where you can draw on that reserve when things get really dark or really hard. I want to make sure that we talk about your website. Tell me the name of it again. It's theholymess.com. It's a little bit of an eclectic collection of things. So I do write about adoption and trauma. 
I have a couple of posts about residential treatment that are very popular because that is very hard to find information on. I actually get emails from parents almost every day who have read that and are seeking residential treatment for their children. But I write a lot about weight loss because that's something that people are really interested into and taking care of ourselves. And then I also run a weight loss program called Faithful Finish Lines that's kind of an offshoot of the holy mess. So that keeps me busy in a very good way. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, this would be a great time for me to say one other thing that I want to make sure that I mention. We talked just briefly before about self-care and how hard that is for special needs parents. But that is something that has been a huge part of my life. Another big part of my story that's not really part of what we're talking about today, but is important is that I've lost 100 pounds. And I've been maintaining that. Thank you. I've been maintaining that weight loss for about 15 years now. So I actually started losing the weight when Paul was a baby. And when I first was a foster parent and we had all these twin babies that were coming in and I'm a pastor's wife and I've got these kids, I gave and gave and gave to the point that I really was making myself sick and I was not taking good care of myself and I was binge eating and I was compulsively overeating and I was heavy. And when Paul was a baby, I started therapy and I knew I had to do something different. And so I have made dramatic changes in that area. I started exercising, eating healthy food, and it's definitely been a challenge to fit that in, especially during those years when all life felt like it was going to heck in a handbasket. But I have continued to take care of myself. And I think that that's why I'm still standing. (laughs) Honestly, um, I really do think that's a big factor in how our family has been able to survive. Because when mom's not doing well, nobody's doing well. We have to take care of ourselves. And I know, I know, I know it's so hard to do, but we somehow have to find a way to carve out some of that time. Even if it's just putting your feet up for 10 minutes to play Sudoku on your phone or read a magazine or whatever that is, but that um, we as moms, we have to take care of ourselves. That's been a running theme through conversations I've had with other special needs parents and interviews that I've done. We give and give and give because that's what we do as moms. We make sure everybody else is taken care of, but we do often give to the point of we're no longer taking care of ourselves and we're not in a position to where we're giving our best anymore. And that's a difficult thing. I'm still trying to learn how to do self-care. And I have to say, being able to lose weight and maintain in the middle of all that you were dealing with is so impressive to me because I will fully admit I'm a stress eater. And to be able to get through that and not turn to that vice is really just amazing to me and that you're able to go on and use that as an example to other parents on how you were able to make it through. That's a really good example to others. It's very much a journey. We talk about a weight loss journey. I'm still on it too. So (laughs) I have times I stress eat, I have times I overeat. And certainly during that process, especially at the beginning, I was still doing it all the time. So it was just each day tiny little steps of progress to move forward is really what it was. So I am far from perfect, but I've just very much seen how I have to take care of myself. And, you know, sometimes women will write to me and say, there's just no way I just can't. I mean, I, you know, I work, I've got these kids, I've got this and I hear that, 
I, I get it. I really understand it. But my answer just kind of comes down to like, but you have to, you have to find a way because if you're sick and in the hospital or you die, I mean, you're not going to be there for your family. And a lot of us are kind of slowly doing that to ourselves because yeah. it's so difficult. So you have to find a way, even if it's just a little, little tiny 15 minutes, you know, here and there, but those good choices add up too. the bad ones or negative ones add up, but the good choices add up too. So even if it's, you know, buying healthier, you know, the rotisserie chicken and the steam fresh vegetables, instead of going through the drive-through, it might feel like it's just dropping in the bucket, but that makes a difference. You will feel better when you eat that and you will have more energy and you will be more there for your family when you make that healthy choice. It's so good. It's so good. And I just want to send it out there too, to everybody. My 19 year old is my autistic son. I have kids 21, 19 and 17. And after 19 years, I feel like just in this last year, have I gotten to the point to where I really understand the importance of self-care mm. and in making baby steps. And again, it's baby steps, but yes. it's not too late to start that. Yes. He's 19 and he's improved so much from where he was when he was younger and there's a lot less issues. So I have more time, but any time that you can fit in is a great time to start. And one of the traps we fall into, and I'm guilty of this is we as moms like to think that nobody else does it the way we do. And if they're not doing it exactly the way that we do it, it's not right. Yes. So we don't want to give up control of anything. And that was always my biggest struggle is, well, I'm the mom. I should be doing it. It's my job. Well, no, <laughs> that's just, it's a level of arrogance and conceit to think that if it's not done the way we say it should be done, that it's not going to be okay. There are other ways to do things. We can pass things off to other people. And if it's not done to our standards, it'll be okay. Our kids are going to survive. It's so true. Oh my goodness. That is so true. You know, we think like, well, we give our kids the optimal care and that actually might be true. Like I might be the one who gives the optimal care, but B plus care that they get at school or at camp or with, you know, a friend who's going to watch them is really okay too. It is. It is. <laughs> and good for them. If anything else, you know, it's good for them to learn to adapt it to other situations and be with other people. So I, yes, you exactly. hit the nail on the head with that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's faith, family, and fitness. But if people want to come and see me, if you go to theholymess.com, you can find all my information there. Perfect. And I'll be sure to link that in our show notes too as well. Perfect. I appreciate that. So that's a great outlet for you to take what you've gone through and what you've learned and share it with others. Before we go, I have one last question for you. Okay. For families who are just starting out in this special needs journey, or even who have children with medical issues or medically fragile children who are just dealing with that diagnosis and they're just in their early days, what advice or encouragement would you like to give to them? You know, we talk about now you've joined this club that you never wanted to be a member of. <laughs> so allow yourself to grieve. And especially when the diagnosis is brand new. I know when my son, Zach, was diagnosed with GA1, we grieved hard. We grieved hard the life that we thought that he was going to have that was going to be very different than what we had thought. So allowing yourself that time and space to grieve and then just recognizing for those who are really in the trenches of it, like I shared about, it won't always be this challenging. Even if the diagnosis might not change, it won't always be this hard. 
your children will grow, they'll mature, they'll learn to use some of those skills that we teach them over and over in therapy, that it feels like they're never going to get it. I promise you they will, and you can do this. And I think for me too, just recognizing that God put this family together and he has a plan for it, even if it seems wild and crazy, <laughs> that there is a reason that your family is together as your family. And that is a beautiful thing. That's perfect. You may not recognize what his plan is at the moment, but there's a purpose behind it. Yes. Thank you, Sarah, for letting us in on your family and getting to know you a little bit better and sharing your story. Thank you, Sherry. It was great to be here today. I'd like to thank everyone for listening today. You'll find all the links and show notes for today's episode at anamazinglyordinarylife.com slash episode three. If you enjoyed the show, I would love it if you left a review and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. As always, I'd love to hear your story. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact me at amazinglyordinarylife.com. And don't miss next week's episode where we'll be visiting with Amy Davidson. She'll tell us how a genetic perfect storm led to her daughter's incredibly rare diagnosis of Lay syndrome, a degenerative neuromuscular disease. I hope you'll join me then.